Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. We're glad that you have chosen to join us. Well, of course, I say welcome back, but this might be your first time, in which case, welcome. Uh, And uh, we're glad that you've chosen to listen to this discussion. And uh, as always, we'd welcome you to share any thoughts you have with us if you feel that we need correction or stern discipline or encouragement uh, or whatever moves you. You can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. My name's Cameron. Yeah, good day, everybody. Um, nice to be here, and I'm Ken. And I'm Luke. And I'm Lachlan. Looking forward to it. Now, I've just finished the uh, edit lock of a podcast episode for, for two weeks ago. So uh, being a manic time of the year, we're trying to record a little ahead of schedule. So it does mean that the, the comment that I'm about to bring to this discussion is now two weeks out of date for our listeners. But it was such a it, such an interesting point that came out in discussion in Sabbath school at Launceston Seventh Adventist Church, that I thought it needed to be shared. So uh, I think we have one thing each that we'd like to share in this episode, and we're going to try and give ourselves a time limit so that we we don't turn it into four separate podcast episodes. And uh, mine was this: when we talked about Moses not being allowed to enter the Promised Land, which is a theme that has appeared fairly frequently in Moses's speeches. It appears that he was a little bit resentful about this, uh, to the point where God had to say to him, Moses, stop nagging. Uh, I've made up my mind. And we commented at the time that Moses is a little kind on himself. He, he says, because of you, God was angry with me. That's the phrase recorded in Deuteronomy. Uh, at that time and in that episode, I remarked that when things are repeated in the Bible, it's, it's uh, a lot of nuances communicated in the differences between how it's told the first time and how it's told the second time. And I think we gain a bit of an insight into Moses' psychology in the way it was told in Deuteronomy. What we didn't do was actually go back and read the first story. So we didn't even follow my, my own advice to, to go back and read the story and compare it. And there was, a, there was an interesting point that came out of that. So uh, let's uh, leave Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, Moses is, is not allowed into the Promised Land because the Lord was angry with the Israelites or because he was angry with you, he's also angry with me, some logic along those lines. Let's pop over to Numbers 20, because I think that there's a detail in this story that I, I, I just do not think has ever been pointed out to me, and it seems fairly essential to the meaning of, of the event. So if we go to Numbers 20, and uh, they're wandering in the desert, and they need food. No, they need water. And what does God tell Moses to do? Well, he tells him to speak to the rock. Yeah. And what does Moses, does, he, does Moses speak to the rock? He does not. No. Well, uh, no, he speaks to the people, doesn't he? Mm, he does. In verse 10, he speaks to the people. And in fact, it's one step better than that, because God's instructions were to take your staff, assemble the community and speak to the rock. And then in verse 9 and 10, Moses took the staff. Um, he and Aaron rounded up the whole congregation. So he assembled the people. And then Moses spoke, listen, rebels, do we, have, do we have to bring water out of this rock for you? So he does the three things, but the third one is wrong. He speaks to the people instead of the rock. He speaks to the people and he hits the rock. And what I've always been told is Moses didn't obey God in this, let's face it, esoteric detail. On some occasions, Moses has been asked to hit the rock. But God has standards and he requires people in positions of leadership to do the right thing and so because Moses hit the rock instead of speaking to it um, he's kept out of the promised land that's that's more or less the sort of message I've been told but God says to Moses why he's kept out and it has nothing to do with hitting yes not not or at not least directly. not explicitly yeah. what in verse 10 or 11 no let's try again 12 verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I, I give them. What, what is it about Moses' actions that does not honor God? Look carefully at what he says. Hmm. He says, all right, you rebels, must, must we bring water out of this rock? Yeah. So he doesn't yeah. stand up there and say... Today the Lord will deliver you with a mighty hand and you will know that he is the Lord your God because of the mighty deliverance that he does for you. He stands Mm. up and he says, must we 
bring water out of this rock. And God mm. says, "You, you didn't. I, I, they were thirsty and they needed the water, so I gave them the water. But you, you, you took credit there for something that was not anything that you could have done. Mm. Which, which is, which is more obviously a moral failing, I think, than hitting it instead of talking the, to the, it. Than the the well, it uh, both would you would say would be a symptom of perhaps anger, you know." The, the words sound angry. The action of striking the rock is angry. Um, but it's more than anger. It's also um, it, uh, Moses usurping God's position as the leader of the, of the people. Yeah, which mm. begs the question, if, if Moses had done exactly as God asked, but angrily, <laughs> would that have been okay? Yeah. Would that have been fine? You know, if he'd done exactly I- as God asked and then also hit the rock... Would that have been okay? My reading of the story is, and this is conjecture, is nothing, we can't be certain for sure, but my feeling is if he had stood up there and said, all right, you rebels, we've been here for years and years and years and you're still not trusting God. All right, well, you're about to see God deliver you again. And then he turned around and hit the rock and water came from it. I don't think that God would have been as upset. Hmm. Maybe not. It, it It is interesting Here's here's a here's a take on it. This is post Ten Commandments. Is this occurring? Just jog my memory. It is post Ten Commandments, isn't it? Would what Moses has done here count as taking the Lord's name in vain? I, I, even if in in the sort of in the negative sense of he's not giving the Lord oh. credit for what he's doing. So if I oh, if I say that I've done something that God has done. Is that taking the Lord's name in vain? Because if I say God has done something that actually I've done, that's definitely taking the Lord's, you know, um, cl- claiming yeah. that this is God's will when it's really just me following my own selfish desires. Yeah. Um, and, and this is, this is a, you know, it's kind of the inverse, but it's the same situation. Moses is following his own desires, in a sense, rather than doing what God has asked. So has he broken one of the commandments here? And is that the fundamental issue? Yeah. Yeah, I like that, Luke. I think I like the idea that that, that that commandment has that flip side. It's interesting because uh, two observations I would make about that comment, and I really appreciate it. Uh, one is, it is perhaps an example of how when we break one of the commandments, we break at least one other and perhaps all of them. Uh, the uh, By taking to himself the um, role of God, um, he both lies about who he is, um, uh, it's, uh, place, it's failing to um, uh, love God, um, uh, failing to put God first, um, it's failing to respect uh, the other people, it's motivated by uh, potentially uh, a sense of self-importance which is behind covetousness, uh, it's stealing God's reputation from him. Um, so there's a way in which, when you look at it in that light, you can see how all of those commandments bring themselves back to one that Jesus spoke about. And we might get to that a little bit later. Uh, that was the first point, uh, that we break all of the commandments um, when we break one of them. And now I've completely forgotten what the second point was, but it might well come to me later. <laughs> but the second point, Ken, was possibly that um, an extra element is in this is not just that uh, Moses didn't honour God as holy in the sight of the Israelites, quoting from verse 12. It's that Moses did not trust God enough mm. to honour mm. him in front of the Israelites. So there's an element of trust here. And a failure to trust God is the sin for which the rest of the Israelites are kept out of the promised land. Mm. So he suffers from the same problem as the rest of the Israelites who didn't make it in. And 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 he gets the same result. Yeah. Hmm. Which which is a, a different perspective on on this. This case emerged in our discussion last week at, at Launceston Sabbath School and uh, I like, I enjoyed it. So I wanted to share that with our podcast listeners. That that is now out of date. That's a commentary on the first couple of chapters in Deuteronomy and we're now moving on. Uh, and we're going to look loosely at Deuteronomy uh, 6 through to 10. 
and what's happening in these brief summary what's happening in these chapters uh, well the, there's more about the law because 6 follows on immediately from the Deuteronomy 5 which is the 10 commandments there's more about the law and remembering the law and following the law and then there's uh, some light genocide in 7 um, <laughs> right which I I phrase that way because it's it's still very troubling. You you can't get around the challenging moral questions implicit in a lot of this story. Not not about what the Israelites did, but about what these books say God told the Israelites to do. Um and then after our light genocide, we're back to remembering God and following commandments. Yeah, or not following the commandments, as the case may be. In in chapter 9, there's a bit of a recount of the story of the golden calf. Um, the, the, the receiving of the first copy of the Ten Commandments on stone and the golden calf and the breaking of them, um, that, that story is recounted. Yeah, and in there, Moses does point out, while we're, on, while we're trying to sort of uh, psychoanalyze Moses, um, Moses does make it quite clear that the Lord was willing to destroy the people, but I interceded, mm. which is true. So mm. there's, yeah, um, and there's another thing that's interesting here in passing at the very start of chapter nine. Um, you know, attention Israel, this very day you are crossing the Jordan to enter the land and dispossess nations that are much bigger and stronger than you are. Well, that that. Uh, we should check. What does that say in a in a? I'm reading that from the message, but it, the problem with it is that it sounds, you know, this very day you're crossing the Jordan. Well, not if Moses is writing this. Moses died before they crossed the Jordan. Um, is he speaking to them in anticipation? Certainly, what it does remind us is of the his, the very tangible context in which this message is given. Uh, the people have been wandering. They've they've had the Exodus. They've been wandering. They're about to enter the promised land and Deuteronomy is giving this fairly fiery, I'm experiencing it, you know, really interesting. It's got a lot of personality to it um, coming through in the in the way the stories are recounted and in the details that are emphasized. We, we commented a few episodes ago that there was almost a certain amount of revisionism going on. Cam, you've just talked about the story of Moses hitting the rock. Well, he doesn't go into that very much in the early chapter of Deuteronomy, does he? He kind of just says, no. yeah. "I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm not getting into the promised land because of all of you." <laughs> so, um, yeah, but yeah. the whole thing is coming in this context of the very imminent uh, entry into the promised land. It's interesting that in relation to that entry, and you draw attention to the first part of chapter nine, um, uh, God makes it very clear that who is in giving the success. Um, uh, and he says, well, look, this looks impossible, but uh, I will be doing it. And then he goes on even further and says, uh, and I won't be doing it because of anything that good in you. I'm doing mm. it because of the wickedness of the people who are there. Um, uh, in de- it, it's, I, I just love the... the um, uh, the image created in verse 6. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Um, <laughs> ah, well. <laughs> I've come across some stiff-necked people in my time, Rem- I might Remind say. me, it may, it may be a good thing to do the last 20 minutes or, or 10 minutes or so of this podcast on the final verses of Deuteronomy 10. It, that would be a good ending point, and stiff neckedness comes into it. Um, Deuteronomy 10, 12, 12 to 22, uh, I, I propose as our um, closing discussion on this particular mm. podcast. We can just come to it, you know, towards the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good idea. Now, in our pre-recording discussion, we each had an idea to share, and I've, I've shared mine. Uh, I don't mind who goes next, um, but we have enough time, I think, to cover all, all the thoughts, and they were all good. Well, I, I'm, I think I'll jump in and go next, because only because I've remembered the second point that I had in response to uh, to Luke's comment. Well, you better about, get it out before it goes away. What, what, about what was God doing and what were, what, what was Moses doing? And, and I, I, the point that I wanted to 
respond to with that was that it's not necessarily a binary thing mm. that God does these things and we do those things um, and that it's one or the other. Uh, indeed, I, I think there's uh, the work of the God that he does through us uh, and the work that we do um, by the grace of God. Uh, so I don't think it's a binary thing. I, th I think it's very much a, uh, a partnership. Uh, the problem is when we don't treat it that way, um, when we treat God as, as, as you know, a magician to give us the things that we want um, or a uh, taskmaster to enforce the things that he wants. Um, so I think there where, that's where the error lies. So that was the other thing that I wanted to say about, uh, about your comment. I've got that off my chest. That brings us then to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Um, it doesn't, that, that, that's a hopeless segue because there's actually no relationship between them that I can see at the moment, although somebody else might see it. So it's a bit of a non sequitur rather than a segue. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands I give to you today are to be upon your hearts, impress them on your children. So I just thought it was very interesting that here, this, we we hear these texts. Uh, we sometimes don't go right back to the source. One of the interesting things about going right back to the source with this text is uh, observe those things which are mentioned in that uh, famous uh, command: love the Lord your God. In what way? Or how? Uh, or to what extent? With all your heart, number one. With all your soul, number two. And with all your strength, number three. Mm. Now, where else have we heard this? Many, many places. Okay, so uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10 is another example of where we hear it in this very book. A similar sort of thing. Serve the Lord, not love the Lord, but serve the Lord. Interesting that Jesus... Uh, and John both uh, say that uh, obeying God is the equivalent of loving God. And here we have serving mm. God being given equivalence to loving God because we are to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today. So we've got heart and soul in Deuteronomy chapter 10. We go over to Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37. And here is a really, really interesting thing, because I haven't found anywhere else, uh, and I may have missed it, and I invite our listeners to correct me on this and point out to me where it comes from. But let's go over to the quotes of this uh, command uh, in the New Testament that Jesus either endorses or states himself, starting with Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, Jesus replied, having been asked by an expert in the law, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God, what with? All your heart, with all your soul. And what's the third one? With all your with mind. Mind. Uh, interesting, uh, no reference to strength, which was contained mm. in the very first one. The and the addition of mind. Um, where did where did the mind come from? Uh, is it is it a feature of it being written in a different language? So, what I'm what I'm trying to say is, um, what, what languages are the Gospels written in? I always thought it was Aramaic, Greek. isn't it? The Gospels. Yeah, I think it's I think it's Greek and Aramaic. Um, so so obviously they were so the historical context there is of course that they were. Um, living under the Roman Empire, and Greek would have been a dominant language there. But Especially in that half Aramaic of the is essentially the, the 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 local regional language. So see, I, uh, I was I'm wondering if if um if the meaning that the Old Testament it'd be interesting to know because there's a great so does strength interpretation. include mind? It, it yeah, the, in the, is it the Septuagint that we're, we're is that a translation of the Old Testament into, into Greek. Greek? I think that yes. might be right. It'd be interesting to know how they translate this text. Because, I mean, what if it meant something like with all your heart, all your mind, and all your will? Yeah, yeah. Because the will is something that is associated sort of with mind and also with strength. Mm. 
it, it it's interesting because you then go over to the same uh, a reference to the same greatest commandment in Mark chapter twelve and verse thirty, uh, and it says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, Ooh. and with all your mind, and with all your strength." Hey, Ken, have uh, a look at Mark chapter twelve verse thirty. Exactly. And oh, is that the uh, one you just quoted? That's the one I just. Oh, quoted. Sorry, I was. <laughs> yeah, I will cut well, that. Well, okay, up. okay. Look, no, no, look, look. This is important because let's go over to the book of your namesake. Um, go over to Luke chapter ten mm-hmm. and verse twenty-seven. Uh, so the Mark one. Notice the order that that was in: heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then mm. come over to Luke chapter ten and verse twenty-seven. And this is one of my favourite stories. I love this story. Um, uh, in part, I love it because verse, Luke chapter 10 and verse 26 contains this question by, well, the, the expert in the law, and I've known a few, um, uh, asks Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds with a question, a very Jewish thing to do. What, what is written in the law? He replied, here's the bit that gets me every time. How do you read it? (laughs) Understanding the law is inevitably an interpretive process uh, because it depends on how you read it. Anyway, that was that's a that's a that's a side issue and one that we could spend a lot of time on. The expert in the law answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, the same order there. But then here with all your strength and with all your mind. So the strength and the mind mm. are reversed. Now, I don't know what the significance in, 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 in any of that is. Uh, there may be none whatsoever. Uh, uh, but it's interesting that in Matthew, strength is left out. And in Mark and Luke, strength and mind are referred to in a different order. Yeah. Well, one thing it speaks to very obviously, Ken, which is the, the prominence with which this theme from the book of Deuteronomy is held in, in the cultural mindset, in the, in the view of the world. Um, I mean, it would, be, it would be striking to have that come up in all those Gospels in those, in those ways, incidentally. And I know, again, it would be a, it's a shame that Clancy's not here on this episode replacing me because she knows a bit more about this. But I understand that this, this phrase, and it may, I don't know whether it's being whether it's elsewhere in the Bible as well, but, you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, God is one, or as it is in the message, God, our God, God the one and only, um, is one of the most important passages in all of the Torah, so in all of the law, for, for a Jewish Hebrew reader. Um, it speaks of God himself. It's a, it's a worshipful description of God. Um, the God, our God, is one, um, especially vivid in the context of a very, very widespread polytheistic view of the world. So it's a very explicit contrast, isn't it? I mean, it's a, mm. it's a pretty remarkable verse. And even here in Deuteronomy 6, it comes kind of out of nowhere. I mean, it's, it comes after the Ten Commandments have been listed in Deuteronomy 5 and um, mm. immediately after a, you know, an admonition to do what God, to, to obediently do what you're told so that you can enjoy God's promised blessing. And then a suddenly comes out this refrain. And, and it's centrality. It's interesting. It, it, sorry, I'll just say this. It's centrality is confirmed, not just by the fact that it's repeated those three times in the Gospels, uh, in each of those Gospels, but the fact that it is the answer that Jesus gives to the question, what is the greatest commandment? And it is the answer that the expert in the law gives to Jesus' question, what is the, what, what is the greatest commandment? It is clear mm. uh, that the answer is essentially so obvious uh, to mm. anybody who would ask that question. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I was going to say is uh, perhaps the thing has gained prominence. Uh, not only for its inherent truth, but for the beauty, the symmetry of the language itself. This this is a rhetorical 
piece of writing. This is a speech read out to people. And, uh, you know, we are influenced by the sounds and the rhythms of speech. Uh, If you have a slogan and it rhymes, people are more likely Mm. to regard it as truth. Um, And... And the the art of of rhetorical language um, is wonderful. I, I I read an interesting anecdote recently. I read an interesting anecdote recently um, about the is it the Gettysburg Address, mm. uh, the very iconic address. There was a newspaper which at the time denounced it as a weak, you know, mindless. <laughs> v- v- Empty piece of speech, and it was it was from a newspaper that was not um, politically affiliated uh, with Lincoln. It was Lincoln, wasn't it? Yes, the Gettysburg yes. Address. Um, and um, anyway, the uh, last year the newspaper published an official retraction of their comments. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> it's... it only took them, you know, a couple of centuries. <laughs> but but there is there is and the things that really last are the things. You, there's lots of rhyming jing, jingles that don't have all, any substantial substantive proof to them. Uh, it's not my night. There's lots of jingles that don't have any su- substantive truth to them. Um, and then there's lots of true things that don't have good rhythm. But when the two come together, you know, it'd be interesting to know how this, how this, what what the meter of it was in the original language. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a, at least in English, it has a nice progression. It turns up in chapter 13. In fact, I, I did a concordance search, Ken. It turns up the phrase um, that you're picking yes. up here about the, with all your soul and with all your heart, turns up about eight or nine times in Deuteronomy. Okay. And the most interesting one is in chapter 13, which we haven't gotten to yet, but I'll, I'll read it from now because I'd be interested to know what you think, but we probably don't have time to find out if, if uh, Lachlan and Luke are going to share their thoughts. Uh, but how about this? If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or a wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods that you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere, keep his commandments and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion. Yes. So what what he's saying there is that if someone else who represents a different God predicts something and it comes true, the reason it came true is God made it came true to test if you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. The, The important thing is loving God with all your heart and with all your soul, Uh, not whether or not some prophesied event foretold comes to pass, not whether some miracle occurs. In the absence of those things, we are to love God with all our heart and with all our soul, with all our strength and with all Mm. our mind, and we are to continue to do so in the dangerous Mm. presence of those things. I find it really interesting that this greatest of commandment is not... It it has no doctrinal requirements. It has... doesn't even really need faith um, necessarily in that you could be in absolute despair and still keep this commandment. You know, Mm -hmm. you could... um, And I I always find that... um, here it comes, everyone. Get your bingo cards ready. C.S. Lewis in the second to last of the Chronicles of Narnia, the name of which is escaping me just for a second. A silver, silver chair. chair. There we go. I knew it was silver something. I should go read those again. Yeah, the silver chair has got a fantastic example of... Uh, il- illustration yeah, of this concept. Yeah, where they are, you know, completely through, you know, an enchantment as part of the story they're completely stripped of their of their faith right and they're persuaded but not not their faith in god their, their faith in the in, in real, everything real yeah. world um, yeah they're completely stripped of it and yet you know this 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 character who i really like Puddleglum because he's not particularly by modern standards 
he's not a he's not an admirable person you know by the the modern extroverted standards of 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 heroes you know he's not outgoing he's not fun um he's he's not not positive. positive he's always he's always gloomy but he has all of these incredibly valuable i would argue Mm. underappreciated characteristics um you know like steadfastness and loyalty and honesty and and um trustworthiness and and he saves the day essentially by going well okay i don't really believe you know i've I've forgotten what it felt like to believe but i'm gonna choose to do it anyway yeah yeah my, yeah. you're telling me that all these things that I think are real are not real, but my imagination of them is so much better than the reality that you are trying to persuade me of, that I'm going to keep holding on to my imagination of these things. Um, I'm going to keep yeah. believing in them anyway. It's a it's a powerful and exciting um, part of the and story. I, I think it's very encouraging when we look at this greatest of commandments that it doesn't require anything other than that. You don't have to feel so, full mm. of faith. You don't have to feel the presence of God. You don't have to know all the correct doctrines. You don't have to be without doubt. You don't have to be happy. You just have to choose. Well, and to the very love real example, Luke, God. the very real example of the Pharisees, which ought to serve as a warning against a denomination that claims to follow the whole word of God, and and um to have strict Sabbath observance. And there's so many ways in which we are similar to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees um, put us to shame in terms of their commitment to learning Scripture mm. and and rigor and study. And we, we dismiss them far too easily as sort of spiritual inferiors. They, they had levels of commitment to the law and to Sabbath keeping and to prophecy that would put Adventists to shame. Mm. And the, the example they set for us, the, the the example that they set for us, Luke, is that it is possible to have all the right doctrine very carefully worked out. And Christ says to them, the things that you're trying to do are not wrong. Do them. But you just have to do some other things as well. There's other things that are more important. You tithe, you mint, and you come in. Well, that's fine. Okay, we'll do that because that's that's a good thing. I'm not questioning your correctness of doctrine, but you've you've missed the essential point. Mm. And so just just as it's possible to follow this, this greatest commandment without the correct doctrine. It's possible to have the correct doctrine without following this commandment. There is, however, and Luke, I think this is an aspect that of what you were talking about uh, that needs to be brought out. Bornhofer in The Cost of Discipleship uh, makes this statement, my paraphrase, only those who believe can obey only those who obey can believe. So there's this uh, inextricable link between right belief and obedience and obedience and right belief. And I think that's an element of what you were talking about. Yeah, it, it, mm. it is. And, and just to clarify, when, when I say, you know, you, you don't have to faith, I suppose you don't have to have faith. I suppose what I mean is more, you don't have to feel like you have mm, faith, mm, mm. right? Because we often, yeah. the way we talk and think about faith in, in our modern denomination is often like an emotion, mm. a feeling. Mm. Yeah. Do and you have is... assurance is one of the questions we ask. Yeah. What is assurance? Oh. Assurance is a a sense of certainty about something. Mm. Uh, uh, I have th- assurance, Can I, I do not have assurance about almost anything, <laughs> but just by personality. I'm not, I'm not assured of... Of anything. As soon as someone says to me, as soon as someone sends, and my students do it all the time, as soon as I hear someone start a sentence with the word surely. You go, <laughs> doubt is planted. I'm, I'm immediately, like it doesn't matter what they say next, I think this they cannot possibly be sure of yeah, what they are I, about I can, to say. I'm, I'm just sceptical from I'm the I'm very answer. similar to you. And my experience, you know, that whole thing, Ken, when we are asked within our church, do you have assurance? My immediate thought on almost every occasion is, well, I did until you asked. <laughs> <laughs> now I don't know. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's good. But it doesn't help. It doesn't help that the the sentence that that 
um, proceeds after the word surely from my students usually involves a request. <laughs> but they don't want to ask for it. Surely, surely, Dr. Rogers, surely we can have a class party at the end of term. I'm like, no, that's not sure. What do, what do you mean you're sure? And they say, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, I hope we can have a class party. Well, that's the opposite of surely, isn't it? I'm currently um, in the final throes of, of um, completing a decision. So it's in its last stages and I'm going through it and correcting it. And Cameron, I have been going through it and removing every time I say clearly, this is the case. I remove the word clearly and just leave it and say, this is the case, uh, trusting that the concept is self-evidently clear. Uh, and if it's not, that I've made the mistake of not expressing it with the clarity that it ought to be expressed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Look, the one right. comment that I have on this, just before we Good. move on, one comment I have on this passage, Ken, is why, <laughs> I mean, it comes hot on the heels in Deuteronomy hot on the heels of what we call the Ten Commandments. It continually baffles me the way that Protestant Christians put the the Ten on a special pedestal. And okay, so I'm aware that chapter 7 talks about the, or, or sorry, chapter 8 talks about the tablets. No, not even chapter 8. Somewhere in Deuteronomy, it talks about the tablets of stone. Chapter 9 with the golden calf. <laughs> right, there we are. Um and I know that they were written on the tablets of stone and held in the ark. So there is some justification for treating them as fairly important. But but why not have this? You know, the the New Testament context that you referred us to in the conversations with Jesus, people very clearly feel that this commandment is an accurate and succinct summary of all the rest. In other words, when asked what is the greatest commandment, this is it, because this encapsulates everything. So it baffles me that we don't place more prominence on it within our own faith one, community. One of the difficulties, and, and I've far exceeded my allocated time on this topic, uh, uh, one of the difficulties is that we seek principles that have a broad enough application to apply uh, to all the circumstances that we might face. Uh, and yet we seek to apply them in very particular situations. And the difficulty is that a, uh, a, a statement of principle that is broad enough to apply in every situation will never provide you with sufficient guidance to give you certainty about your conduct in the particular situation. And the statement of principle that governs the particular situation uh, will never be able to be extrapolated fully to provide you with guidance in every situation. So I think the Ten Commandments and this perhaps give a nice um, tension between those two mm. uh, difficulties that, that, that we face. Hmm. Yeah. Look, we can't leave this discussion without addressing the... Uh, the light genocide, I think was the phrase you used. I think that was Luke, uh, wasn't it? Ex- <laughs> yeah, Luke, was Luke described Luke's? as light. Uh, my, my only quibble uh, on that would be A little light genocide exactly how... between lawmaking and, and, oh, and no, love no, and my quibble is My quibble is on the word light uh, rather than well, on the word genocide, it's, it's to be honest. It's seven um, nations. Yeah, okay. Well, but, but been done. so let, let me pick up on this just a little bit. I don't have a, a really robust answer, and I think this is a tension we're exploring throughout this entire season. It, it is inescapably a tension in the context of Deuteronomy. If the book is given to a people on the verge of conquering a land, it's going to be embedded in the in the awkward context of of essentially conquest and invasion. And so that's 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 a difficulty. It's interesting, Locke, that God doesn't say to the Israelites, I'm clearing these people out so that you can have room. No. That's mm. He says, I'm doing it because of their wickedness. Well, that's exactly right. And he does it pretty pretty explicitly, um, you know, here and elsewhere, not because of and the... One of the other themes is, in Deuteronomy, very strong, is if you, if you abandon God and start mistreating people, God will employ other nations to, do, to be his instruments of justice against you. That's right. That's right. So, so, so there is some balance, but it's it doesn't it doesn't yeah. fully negate the problem you're describing. No, and 
So just for everyone who is doesn't have an open in front of them, we're referring to Deuteronomy 7, which starts in the message thus. When God, your God, brings you into the country that you're about to enter and take over, he will clear out the superpowers that were there before you, the Hittite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Those seven nations are all bigger and stronger than you are. God, your God, will turn them over to you and you will conquer them. You must completely destroy them, offering them up as a holy destruction to God. So that's the light genocide to which we are referring. Which means that um, Monty Python in the uh, uh, In Search of the Holy Grail was quite right uh, to refer to the holy hand grenade of Antioch, I think it was, uh, which was to be lobbed, uh, according to the prayer, in thy mercy, um, to be totally yeah. destroyed. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, just... Blow to... them to smithereens in yeah, thy mercy. Yeah, that is because it goes on. Locke, you actually stopped before the most troubling bits. Make no treaty oh, with I, them. Show yes. them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from me, following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's um, it's not just annihilating a people. It's it's written in the context of wiping out a, an entire culture. Now, I don't have a good answer to this, but I want to share something here that I just found really exhilarating as an idea. I'm going to throw it out, and we're not going to have time to exhaustively discuss it on this episode, but maybe we can think about it afterwards and maybe listeners can also think about it afterwards. And the idea comes from the fact that it's explicitly seven nations. So here we have in the start of this part of the promised land phase of the Old Testament story, we've got this exclusion, it seems, from God's state of grace and God's blessing of of only seven nations and other parts of Deuteronomy have kind of made clear you know you'll be passing through these nations but do not fight them don't have any issue with them but now we've found seven nations that are to be wiped out and the idea that I want to share very briefly came came to me I encountered it in a book called Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell and he picks up in the Gospel of Mark there are two different versions of the feed, miraculous feeding of the multitude and both of them are given in Mark. And the first one is in Mark chapter 6, starting from verse 33. And it's the feeding of the 5,000. And there's a few interesting anecdotes. So how many loaves and fish do they have? They find five loaves and two fish. Some scholars identify five as being the number of books in the law, in the Torah. And two is the number of tablets on which the recorded law was stored in the Ark of the Covenant. This context, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is in, in Israel. He is speaking to the Israelites. And how many baskets of leftovers are collected? Twelve. Twelve. This story, with the numbers involved, is telling a picture, painting a picture of Jesus as the second Moses, providing manna to the Israelites in the context of them feeding on the law and the Torah. So then what happens in the Gospel of Mark? Well, Jesus leaves the region of the Israelites. He goes to, um, the in, in chapter 7, we get the Syrophoenician woman. Um, he got up and went away and went there from there to the region of Tyre. So he, he leaves the zone of the chosen people of God, by, by their telling of the story. And you get this remarkable interaction with the Syrophoenician woman in, in Mark 7. Um, he says, let the children be satisfied first, because it's not good for, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered Jesus and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he says, because, he, because he really of your faith. That. He likes that. And he That's seems such a to, good answer. It's a really good answer, and it seems that what's happening here is a process of opening the eyes of his disciples to a bigger mission. And just after that, in chapter 8, in those days, there was again a large crowd. Now, in those days, in those days when he was in the region of Tyre, right? He's outside the region of Israel here. 
and a large crowd. He feels compassion on them. He says, let's get them some food. His disciples say, where, where will we be able to find enough? He was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. And how many people were there? This one's 4,000. I can't put my finger on right now where it says that. Mm. But Jesus gives thanks. He, he blessed it. He ordered them to be served. They ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over. The fact that it's 4,000, four, four corners of the earth, four is a number associated with the Gentiles. The fact that it's seven baskets left over, seven is a number associated with these excluded nations at Deuteronomy chapter 7 that we just read, an explicit list of seven nations to be destroyed. And Rob Bell's point here is that the, the back-to-back partnering of two miraculous feedings is painting a picture of God's blessing not only being big and abundant for the 12 tribes of Israel, but being equally big and abundant for all nations and for the Gentiles in the four corners of the earth. And I found that so interesting and so exciting. And you can argue, okay, is that reading too much into numbers? Well, I quite like numbers. To me, it, it had a bit of a um, an exciting pattern resonance to it. But I think actually, to be fully honest, there is a systematic revision or reconsideration of of Deuteronomy 7 throughout the Bible. You get not that far forward in the Old Testament, you get to the gospel, the, not the gospel, the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is like an extended rebuttal to this instruction in Deuteronomy 7 not to marry their daughters, right? Some of their daughters turn out to actually be, be pretty S- decent Some of their people. daughters end up being the descendants of David and Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and then, the, the and then so... Right? Yeah. yeah, the answer. And then throughout the Minor Prophets, you've got all sorts of pictures. You've got pictures of Egypt and you've got pictures of other nations, um, you know, coming to worship God. So it's by even, the time... Even before that, some of the other heroes. So incidental things are, 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 are thrown forward. Um, David's, you know, one of his chief military officers fighting wars against these pagan nations is not an Israelite. Mm. Bathsheba's husband is Uriah mm. the Hittite. And, and, so it's obviously and part of the Israelite community. Universally described as a, a morally, uh, you know, yeah. outstanding individual. Yes, much more yeah. so than David. So yes. what I, what I want to do, and I know this sounds like a cop out, but what I want to do on the basis of not just my own discomfort, but of what I consider to be a substantial amount of of narrative evidence, and in the case of the miraculous feedings in the Gospel of Mark, even numerological significance. I do believe that the Holy Spirit inspiring the Bible as a whole cannot be understood as giving flat open endorsement to this kind of light genocide, Luke. And I think that whatever we're going to do with Deuteronomy 7, where it speaks of the total destruction, uh, offering them up as a holy destruction to God, whatever we're going to do with that, it is an awkward phrase. It is an uncomfortable thing. But I think I think we should at least be honest about the fact that the Bible in its bigger picture cannot be used uh, as a basis to endorse this kind of action. In fact, it calls us, and in particular Jesus and his greater revelation of God, calls us to a completely different kind of interaction with all nations of the world. So I enjoyed that challenge from Rob Bell's book. I throw it out here because this is where the seven nations number sort of starts um mm. and yeah it it's it, it helps me at least somewhat well well look i think we can um th- this this may be a good time to steer us into the home stretch um and talk about deuteronomy 10 um and there is actually a segue here in that you don't have to go as far as ruth to start to see a rebuttal of chapter 7 three chapters later there is, in, in <laughs> fact, the sort of hints of one, or at least there's some nuance to this, because when you read seven in isolation, and for me, I think I think this is actually a really strong, what you just said, Locke, is a really strong rebuttal of the sort of uh, hermeneutic of literal interpretations of every sentence in the Bible, because... Especially... Especially when you don't read those sentences as a block, but you yeah, pick isolated in, in, ones. You don't from... put them in any sort of context and you take them at face value as they're written in their own. If you just read chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, you you don't get the full picture. 
and you don't get the nuance mm. of anything. So Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 through to 22, maybe we could we could all take uh, three verses each or, or two verses each and yeah. just go through that. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise and he is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, seventy persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now there's a lot to like in just a few verses there. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> going to go through and run through all the things that we could spend half an hour talking about. Um, circumcise your hearts. Don't be stiff-necked. Stiff-necked meaning <laughs> proud or stubborn. Um, the God is awesome. He shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. And there's an interesting sort of thought about sacrifice there. Defends the cause of the fatherless. Mm. The widow loves the foreigner. And you should love the foreigners as well. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I mean... Well, you're exactly right, Luke. I didn't need to even reach as far forward as the Book of Ruth, did I? It's, it's a remarkable contrast to Deuteronomy 7. Um, and, and also a sort of remarkable kind of uh, insight into the character of God and a bit of a, an, a, a practical guide to that greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and strength. Hmm. How, how do you do that? Well, you, you, you don't be stubborn and proud. You don't show partiality. You don't accept bribes. You look after the fatherless and the widow. You, you hmm. love others. It's, it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's my favorite verses in Deuteronomy so far. Yeah, I think it's a great note on which to finish. Uh, and uh, many more things to discuss. There were some ideas we didn't get onto within our time limit, so we'll, we'll carry them over to next week's discussion. We hope that you'll join us. As always, feel free to share this uh, if you feel it would be helpful to anyone. And uh, we look forward to having you part of our discussion again next week.